know, it was uh, last year, Christy and I, we went on a hike together and we were returning back towards the Shelby County area, driving our uh, 10-year-old minivan that we had ridden really, really hard and really, really long and had done a great job. And then all of a sudden it gave out. And we had to pull over and get a tow truck to get it delivered back to our community. And we realized, okay, we're going to have to bite the bullet and go buy a new minivan. And so we went through the process and we were sharing with the kids about the process of trying to figure out how we could afford this minivan. And then as Christy and I were down at the kitchen table trying to figure out what we were going to do, my son came downstairs with his piggy bank and said, mom and dad, I want to help buy it. And he put his piggy bank on the table. And that was his way of saying, I want to help take care of this. It's so meager. He's even got a mint inside of his piggy bank. (laughs) But you know what's so amazing is that it was meager, but it was meaningful. Because he was giving his best. In fact, maybe for some of you today, you might be receiving a gift of popsicle sticks and glue, and you're going to treasure it. It's meager, but it's meaningful because the person who's giving it to you is giving their best. Well, what we're going to see today is a woman who approached Jesus and gave him a gift, and this gift was meager in light of his infinite worth. And yet, Jesus celebrates the gift because she gave her best. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. As a faith family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark together in a sermon series called On the Move. We're seeing how Jesus is indeed on the move throughout the gospel of Mark. It's a fast-paced book. The word immediately shows up more than 41 times here in this gospel as Mark is quickly going from one story to another, pointing to Jesus as the suffering servant. He is the perfect son of God and son of man who's come to die for the sins of the world. We've seen over the last several weeks in Mark chapter 13, we're Jesus has been addressing the end of the world as we know it. We've looked at the end times and chapter 13 is a celebration and an anticipation of Jesus's triumphant return where he's riding on the clouds and coming to rescue his people. But then we get to chapter 14 and the mood changes. An ominous foreshadowing of Jesus's suffering covers the entire chapter. In fact, the seriousness of of Passion Week is like a storm cloud that is settling in over over the land. And from here on out, through the rest of the book of Mark, he focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is just days away from his upcoming death on the cross. The religious leaders are eager to arrest and kill him. One of his own disciples is plotting to double cross Jesus and turn him into the religious leaders. And yet in the middle of the scheming and the deceiving, a woman does something for Jesus that the world will never forget. Look with me in Mark 14, beginning with verse one. The scripture says, it was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. 
The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Now, this is not the only time that this story appears in Scripture. You go to Matthew 26 and John chapter 12, they repeat the same story, sometimes adding some more details that Mark does not. Now, we mustn't get this story confused with a separate story of another time where another woman in another city approaches Jesus with an alabaster jar of perfume. You find that in Luke chapter 7, where something similar happens. But for our time here today in this text, I want you to notice not only what's happening, but what this means for us. I want you to see first the providential plot to kill Jesus. The providential plot to kill Jesus. In verse 1, Mark gives a backstory to the reader. He's showing that something is happening in the background. There's something underway, and he wants the reader to take note of it. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. It's two days before Passover. Jerusalem has probably multiplied its population by more than five times as Jews have descended upon the holy city from all over the world to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover is the annual celebration of how God rescued his people from Egyptian captivity. We'll see that in Exodus chapter 12. Now, we'll unpack this more, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But in essence, Passover was like the Jewish 4th of July. It's Independence Day. It's a celebration where the death angel passed over the homes of the people of God living in Egypt who had the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and how the God set them free from Egyptian captivity. Now, isn't it amazing how God's timing is perfect? Jesus is in Jerusalem at the time that the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. Mark tells us the providential timing, verse one, that it's not only two days before Passover, but it's also the festival of unleavened bread. Now this festival immediately followed Passover and it lasted a week. It celebrates the time when the Israelites, they ate no bread with yeast in remembrance of the readiness in which they were escaping slavery in Egypt and follow the Lord into the promised land. Grab hold of what's happening here. Jesus is our Passover lamb who cleanses us of our sin and he is our bread of life who frees us from slavery to sin and is leading us to a new land. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world through the shedding of his blood at the cross. And Mark here is giving us clues in the text of God's timing, that God is setting the stage for the perfect timing of Good Friday. Now, none of this has caught God off guard. Jesus is in full command of it all. He's in control. The chief priests and the scribes, they're mere pawns in the hand of God as they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus, verse 1, in a cunning and treacherous way. They couldn't stand it any longer. They wanted Jesus dead. So they hatched a plan to take him down after the festival so that the large crowd of people who loved Jesus would not riot against them. But as we're about to see in verse 10, Judas Iscariot expedites the timing of these religious leaders. God is providentially at work through the plotting and through the scheming of evil men to accomplish his purposes. So, does God panic? Does God fear? Does God wring his hands with anxiety of what is about to happen? No. In fact, David says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As these religious leaders are conspiring together against the Lord, against the anointed one, against King Jesus, the Lord laughs. He laughs. You see, God is the one who's in control over all things, even the exact date and hour of Jesus' crucifixion. God is the one who is providentially in charge of all things, even through the people who are plotting against him. He is sovereign over their plans. Question, what are you feeling daunted about? What are you overwhelmed by? Please know, beloved, if you are in Christ, you do not need to fear. God is sovereign and providentially working even through the schemes of those who are his enemies. We see where Jesus does not panic. He does not fear. He comes into Jerusalem fully aware of what is about to happen. So may I say to you, because Christ is in you, you do not need to fear. Whatever right now is bringing you anxiety and panic and uncertainty, look unto Jesus. He is the one you can trust. And he is the one who is in sovereign control over every detail of your life. The second thing I want you to see here in the text is the sacrificial gift of love for Jesus. Jesus is in Bethany. It's a small town two miles outside of the city. It's a town Jesus would frequently stay at whenever he would visit the holy city. He's at the home of Simon the leper. Simon's probably a man whom Jesus has healed of his leprosy, of his skin disease, and now he's hosting a party to celebrate. And with the resurrected Lazarus sitting there at the table, eating with the disciples, can you imagine the questions going on around the table? Hey, Lazarus, what was it like on the other side? 
Hey, hey, Lazarus, what was it like to come back from the dead? Hey, Jesus, do you want to do it again? You can just imagine the conversation around the table as this resurrected Lazarus is right there with them. And as they're eating and as they're talking with one another, a woman walks up and interrupts the meal. Now, in Jewish culture, that's a big no-no. A woman should not approach a man, especially a Jewish rabbi. She is not supposed to interrupt a meal unless she is carrying food, according to this culture here. Well, who is this woman? Well, Matthew and Mark, they don't tell us her name. John does. And John tells us that the woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Beloved, allow verse 3 to encourage you. You can come to Jesus anytime you want. You have access to the king. You can approach Jesus, even when it's culturally inappropriate. He's never too busy for you. You don't have to schedule a time on his planner to secure a spot to have some time alone with him. Jesus invites you to come to him any time. The invitation is open. Here is this woman approaching Jesus, which is culturally totally inappropriate. And yet here she is approaching Jesus with a gift. Notice that Mary takes this flask of an expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus's head. I love how John says it in John 12, three, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Isn't it interesting that every time we encounter Mary in scripture, she's at the feet of Jesus? In Luke chapter 10, Martha is there. She's hosting a dinner party with Jesus and the disciples. She's getting all the meal prepared. She's running around the house like with her hair on fire, trying to figure out how to care for all these people. And she gripes at Jesus, tell my sister to help. What's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. In John chapter 11, we see where Jesus approaches Bethany and her brother Lazarus has just died. And she comes to Jesus and she throws herself at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then we get to John chapter 12. Here she is once again at Jesus's feet, washing his feet with her hair, pouring out the perfume. Y'all, I've got a lot to learn from Mary. She is modeling for us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, to love Jesus, to come and get low and lay at his feet. Don't, gra- don't miss this reality right here. Followers of Jesus never grow beyond sitting at the feet of Jesus. You never grow beyond this. You see, we are all beginners, every single one of us. We are all beginners when we come to the feet of Jesus. You see, the same Mary who loved to sit at the feet of Jesus, she shows her love for Jesus by breaking this white flask, this alabaster jar, possibly a family heirloom passed down from generations to generations. And she takes the bottle of nard, a root that grows primarily in India, and she empties the bottle 
on Jesus from head down to his feet. A sweet aroma fills the room. As a display of her love for Jesus, Mary does something so over the top that it shocked everybody in the room. You see, love of Jesus compels God's people to do something significant for Jesus. What about you? Have you ever done something so over the top, so crazy, so bizarre for the Lord that people are just like, what are you doing? That's crazy. Why would you do something like that? Has your love for Jesus compelled you to radical obedience? Saying, Lord, my love for you is so great. I can't wait to show my love for you through my act of obedience. Has there been a time in which you've done something as a way of saying, Lord, I love you. And it's just crazy. It's over the top. It's, it's peculiar. It's just the life that God is calling you and I to. To love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not partial. It's not compartmentalized. It's not saying, Lord, you can have my Sunday morning. It's saying, God, you can have all of my life. I exist for your glory and I see who you are and what you've done. And it compels me to want to honor you and to do big and great things for you. You see, when you realize who Jesus is and what he has done, it drives you towards radical obedience. Mary wanted to show the Lord how much she loved him. And she gave him this generous, over-the-top sacrificial gift. Sadly, her gift was met with Thirdly, the cynical greed of Judas Iscariot. Verse four says some were expressing indignation. That word indignation, it means big, angry. They criticized her. They ridiculed her. The response of those around Jesus must have disheartened her. Can you imagine just giving Jesus your very best and then all of a sudden you're being criticized for it? For her to give this gift to the Lord, it brought the anger and the condemnation. People were criticizing and demeaning her. These men, they said, look at verse 4, that it's a waste. You've wasted this. Hear me on this. When you obey the Lord, you're going to face criticism. Even religious people will criticize your obedience. May I say to you, Obey anyways. Even though people rise up against you, even though people call you crazy, you obey. You follow the Lord. When people begin criticizing and demeaning and minimizing what you're doing for Jesus, you be faithful anyways. Because here is this woman who is just giving Jesus her best and here she is being criticized for it. Do not let the discouragement of others prevent you from your obedience to Jesus. So which one of the disciples is leading the charge? Well, John tells us in his gospel, it was Judas Iscariot. John 12 verse four says, one of, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. As Mary is interrupting the conversation and pouring out the perfume upon Jesus, Judas Iscariot is doing the math. A denarius, okay, that's a day's wage. How much is this worth? And we can take this money and it could be used for these purposes. 
So if you and I were to take a denarius and translate it to our modern day, it's about $20,000 worth of perfume. I'm not sure about you, but I can't swing that. That's how great of a sacrifice this is. See, the treasure here of the group is money hungry. Verse five says they began to scold her. That English word for scold, it's too soft. That word literally means to roar. It means to flare your nostrils. Just as a bull will flare its nostrils and scrape its foot on the ground before it unleashes its fury. That's exactly what these disciples, Jewish, I'm sorry, Judas Iscariot in particular, are doing right here. Hear me, when you give Christ your best, expect opposition, even from the religious. For the light, the, the brighter your light, the more the darkness hates the light. I remember as a new believer, I had a lot of zeal for Jesus and a little bit of knowledge. But as I was growing more in love with Jesus as an 18-year-old and learning and discovering who he is and all that he accomplished for me, I remember someone saying, hey, Kenneth, you need to calm down with this Jesus stuff. And I took that personally and it cut very deeply. And it hit me and I thought, how in the world can someone who is on death row Calm down when they've been exonerated. How can someone who used to be a spiritual orphan, who's now been adopted by the king, calm down? How can we, who were slaves to sin and we have been set free by the blood of Christ, how can we calm down? It changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And if Jesus has not radically changed your heart and life, you need to take a good long look in the mirror. Get on your face before God and say, God, change my heart. Help me to realize who you are and what you've done for me. Now, I can't calm down. I only want my love for Jesus to be ever increasing. That my love for Christ is ever growing. Not because I'm awesome, but because he's awesome. When I see all that Christ has done for me, question, what about you? Have you allowed the criticism of others to tamper your passion? Have you allowed lukewarmness creep into your heart? Do you have a white hot passion for the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today repent. Come back to your first love and say, Jesus, you're my number one. You're my everything. And I want to do something crazy and radical just as this woman. She, here she is giving her best. He is infinitely worthy of your best. Nothing else is more worthy than Jesus. No one is more worthy than Jesus of him receiving your all. Do not allow the criticism of goats to hinder you. Do not allow the tares to choke out your zeal for Jesus. Judas, the money-hungry disciple, he covers up his greed by declaring that the perfume, verse five, it could have been sold. It could have been given to the poor. But John gives us some clear commentary in John 12, verse six. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Ah, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Judas was not a social justice warrior. He was a thief. 
He was not interested in caring for the poor. He wanted to fill his greedy pockets. And by implication, stay with me on this one, by implication, Judas and the other disciples who were joining their voices together in displeasure towards Mary, they're saying, in essence, Jesus, you're not worth 300 denarii. Jesus, you're not worth this kind of sacrifice. And so I ask you, what is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? How much does he deserve of your life? I love how Jesus responds to the situation. He rebukes Judas and the others. And we see verse four, the powerful affirmation of Jesus towards Mary. I love verse six. Leave her alone. I feel like as a father of a daughter, I say those words every day of my life. Why, thank you, why are you bothering her, verse six? She has done a noble thing for me. Jesus praises her. This is a beautiful, honorable, noble thing that she has done. Mary has given an incredible gift of extravagance. Mary wasn't wealthy. She gave out of her the overflow of her love for Jesus. You see, when it comes to giving, it's not about the portion, but the proportion. When it comes to giving, it's not about the portion, but the proportion. Kenneth, what are you talking about? You see, the portion is an amount. I give a safe, set amount. I'm giving it to the Lord. Lord, you can have this, okay? But the proportion is a ratio. You're going to say, I'm going to give what costs me dearly. We saw this several weeks ago in Mark chapter 12. Remember the, the, the poor widow? There she is giving at the temple. And what does she give? Two small coins. And Jesus says, boys, did y'all see that? She just gave more than everybody. And the disciples, probably Judas Iscariot, saying, uh, no, she didn't. She gave less than everybody else. And he says, boys, no, 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 no. She gave all she had. Proportion. She gave a greater ratio. You see, God is not impressed by big gifts that cost you nothing. He is not wowed by large offerings that are merely a tip of what you really have. God is interested in great gifts that come from great sacrifice. He is amazed by this widow's offering and here he is celebrating and honoring and affirming and celebrating the gift of this woman who just poured out expensive perfume. You see, God, God yawns at large gifts that are not costly and yet he celebrates all gifts that are costly. Remember in 2 Samuel 24, David sinned against the Lord by taking a military census. And the Lord brought judgment. And so in order to bring 
mercy and to seek the Lord's favor, what does David do? He goes to build an altar at the threshing floor of a man whose name is Aruna. David went to Aruna and said, I want to buy the land. And Aruna says, no, 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 it's for you. You're the king. You can just have it for free. Remember what David said? He says, no, I insist on buying it for a price for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I'm not gonna do this. If I'm gonna give to the Lord, I want it to cost me. I need to be invested in this. Well, in light of the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made for you, how can we offer to the Lord something that costs us nothing? Question, do you give God your leftovers? Do you tip the Lord and keep the best for yourself? Mary gave an over-the-top, incredible gift, and Jesus says she's done a beautiful thing. Jesus here is the one who is worthy of our all. He is worthy of our best, not our leftovers. And he says, here, it's the deal, guys. You're always gonna have the poor with you and you can care for them and you should. But Jesus here is actually quoting Deuteronomy 15. It says, for there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your land. God cares for the poor. God loves the poor. We as the church are called to uh, care for the poor all throughout scripture. But here, verse seven, Jesus is rebuking Jesus, uh, Judas. He's rebuking the disciples and he's holding himself up as more important than a benevolent offering. You see, the poor will always be around, but as for me, I won't always be. This woman, she's done an incredible act of love here, verse eight. She has done what she could. Better translated, what she had, she did. She didn't have much. She didn't have a big 401k or a large amount of money to give to Jesus, but just what she had, she gave. Not begrudgingly, not reluctantly, but generously. She's declaring with her actions, Jesus, you are worthy of my best. And did you notice what Jesus said she did. Look at verse eight. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Just as he had been predicting for months, Jesus knew that death now awaited him in a matter of days. The clock is ticking until his crucifixion. Now, whether Mary knew it or not, she was preparing him for the stench of death that was quickly approaching her anointed king. You see, Mary gave Jesus her all because in a few days, Jesus would give his all at the cross. And she had no idea, y'all. Y'all, she had no idea the worldwide significance through her act. What the world says is wasteful. God is redeeming for a greater purpose than she could have ever imagined. And Jesus, he was exactly right. Verse nine, when it, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mary had no idea that the entire world would hear about her sacrifice. And yet here we are. 6,552 miles from Bethany. 
2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it. Jesus was exactly right. And we are honoring and celebrating this woman's sacrifice as, whoa, that's exactly the kind of discipleship and obedience the Lord is calling me to. To say, God, you can have my best. You can have my all. I want to pour it all out for you. My brief, temporary life here today, gone tomorrow. God, take all of my life. Use it for your purposes. Mary had no idea how her sacrifice would advance the kingdom, the impact for generations to come. She was all in on Jesus' question, what about you? What sacrifice are you making for Jesus that future generations will be impacted for Christ? Do not think for a second that you have to be wealthy to be used by God. In fact, usually it's best if you're not. What made Mary's gift so significant was the fact that she wasn't wealthy. Yet Jesus affirms Mary in this incredible gift that she offers to him. It's an act of faithfulness. But then it leads to number five, the betrayal. Judas initiates against Jesus. Judas then, verse 10, goes to religious leaders to betray Jesus. Now they're pumped about this. Like, hey, this is fantastic. We now have an insider. They don't have to wait till the end of the festival to kill Jesus. They've got a guy in the inner circle. So they offer Judas money. Now, isn't it interesting? Judas was so greedy that here he is criticizing Mary, but here he is taking blood money. He's taking a bribe. He's getting financial kickback to turn Jesus in. 30 pieces of silver. That's going to be his reward. Another interesting point, that's the exact amount the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would be betrayed for 500 years earlier. Well, for Mary... Jesus was more important than money. For Judas, money was more important than Jesus. What about you? Would you empty your bank account for Jesus? Would you sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and follow Christ? You see, Jesus knew the heart of Mary, Jesus knew the heart of Judas, and Jesus knows the heart of you. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What, what does this look like? What, what's the challenge? How, what am I supposed to do as I leave this campus? It's your impact point and it's this. Give Jesus nothing less than your best. Are you giving Jesus your best? Does your devotion to Jesus cost you anything? What are you holding back from Jesus? Well, what what does God want from me? What does God want from you? You. All of you. Your finances, your relationships, your job, your school, your, your marriage, your family, your home. All of you. All of you. Paul says it like this in Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, for this is your spiritual act of worship. What does God want from you, all of you? So question, are you giving God your best? 
Does he have all of you? If not, today is a day in which you say, Lord, I want to see who you are and what you've done for me in the gospel. That through the cross, you've made a way for me to be ransomed and forgiven and chosen and adopted. And I have a family and I get to be with you for all of eternity. Yes, Jesus, I'm all in on you. I believe that you defeated death for me on the third day. And so Christ, you have all of me. When I see that all that you've done for me, that I only exist because you say so, Lord Jesus, you can have all of me. Question, are you giving Jesus your best? Here's the call I want to give to our church that all of us, me especially, we give Jesus our best. That we come before the Lord and we offer him our best as a gift and say, I'm yours. You can have all of it. I'm not keeping this from me. This is for you, Lord because you're better than this gift. You're better than what this world could ever provide. Lord Jesus, you can have all of me. You're gonna get my best.